Today I'm joined by Dr. David McKemmy. He is a professor of biological sciences at the University of Southern California, where he researches the neurobiology of pain. David, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Oh, thank you, Adam. Appreciate the invite. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. So how did you first become interested in neuroscience or biology, whatever uh, background you came from? Yeah, so I became in interested in neuroscience actually fairly late in kind of my academic career. I, I originally planned on being an engineer and as an undergrad and didn't really take to that. And then I, um, through peers and colleagues that I knew, got interested in biology and um, got a degree in biochemistry. And then after I got my degree, undergraduate degree, I went to work as a technician in a research lab for a little while and actually found that very interesting and pleasing and studied uh, physiology of actually muscle and did that for a while. And then after I got my degree, I basically was looking for kind of the next thing I wanted to do and really got interested in sensory neurobiology, understanding how we perceive our environment and what the molecules and cells that are involved in that process, how they function, how they work. And then I, so I got into neurobiology basically as what's called a postdoctoral fellow after I already got my, my doctorate. Yeah. Here, when, when most people think about neuroscience, they tend to think of like these brain scanning and doing work with humans, but then there's this whole other field of, of more like what you're doing where you're working with animals or you're working with like individual neurons. So could, mm -hmm. could you talk about that? Like what, what neurobiology uh, is like? Yeah. So it's like any sort of biology. Biology, we're interested in how cells function. And in neurobiology, we're interested in how neurons function. And the difference with, I think, for neurobiology is the diversity of the types of cells that are involved in it. And my lab particularly, we just focus on what's called the peripheral nervous system. So these would be the neurons and the cells that are um, we call it innervating or in the tissues that are like our skin, for instance. Um, so the skin actually is a sensory organ. It is the largest sensory organ you have. We think about, you know, like the eye, for instance, as a sensory organ, it senses light, but your skin is what senses basically um, uh, touch and of, of those data and temperature. And so what we're interested in understanding how those cells function and more importantly, and this is, really is, I think, has um, really significant clinical relevance is we're interested in understanding how proteins that are inside those cells, how they detect various um, extracellular signals. And what these proteins become is they become drug targets, if you will. They become targets for um, how we could treat conditions. And so like we're interested in trying to understand how these neurons are involved in pain perception as potentially targets for maybe new therapeutics or new therapeutic approaches. So are the sensory neurons, let's say in the skin and in the eye, are they fundamentally different or do they start off the same and it's like they specialize across development, early development? So they, they are fundamentally different and depending on the types of systems you're, you're talking about. So for instance, in the skin, these cells that we're interested in are uh, localized in what we call sensory ganglia. They're, they, they are zone for a particular part of the body. And what they have is they have a process, an axon that extends out into the skin and is right below the skin surface. And so there's any sort of change in the environment, temperature, or say force applied to the skin, chemicals applied to the skin, 
these cells can detect these changes and then they send an electrical signal to um, the, the, the central nervous system, the spinal cord, then up onto the brain for the mm-hmm. appropriate, what we hope at least is the appropriate response to these types of stimuli. Right. So even different patches of skin have very different uh, sensory neurons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so exactly. So that, when some areas are more sensitive, is that, are they more sensitive neurons or are there just more of them so they can pick up on, on smaller signals? It's, it, it actually is kind of, is a combination. So there basically are like one of the places that really is the most sensitive for um, cold, like we study would be places like the eye, for instance, there are sensory receptors there that are sensing cold and they're much more tuned to that stimulus and there's also a higher percentage of those cells believed to be in that part of the skin and there's there's a great um, um, thing called the uh, homunculus which basically looks at our body in in terms of size based on sensory innervation and so if we look at parts of our body that are really heavily prepared to sense things like our hands would be huge compared to the rest of our body and because we have very good tactile sensation in our hands for instance our face and our eyes would be much more sensitive to different types of stimuli than say like, you know, the middle of the knee or something like that, you know? So the body does have different zones. And if you can think about it, I think very intuitively, there are parts of the body, which we want to be tuned to sense things, use hands as an example, exploring our environment, tactile sense, touch and feel things. It's going to be different than say other parts of our body. That makes a lot of sense. So how did you first become interested in studying pain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess it was kind of, again, this part of looking for uh, what I wanted to do next after I got my, my doctorate. And uh, what got me into it is I was looking for a laboratory that was doing neuroscience, was doing molecular biology too. So this was in the, the early 1990s and molecular biology was really hitting a renaissance or had already hit the renaissance at that stage. And um, I... I came across a laboratory at the University of California, San Francisco, um, headed by um, a wonderful uh, professor, former mentor of mine called named David Julius. And what struck me to the laboratory is they had just identified or cloned, as we call it, a receptor for heat, for painful heat. And it was the first temperature sensing receptor identified, and they did it in a really what I thought was a remarkable process is they used chili peppers to have to figure out what was involved in heat. So you eat, you know, a habanero or a jalapeno, you get that robust burning sensation in your mouth. What that is, is these peppers have a compound called capsaicin. And these capsaicin is made by these different types of plants. And so the peppers that are really hot have a lot of capsaicin. The peppers that are kind of mild have a low levels. And what capsaicin does is it binds to this naturally heat sensing receptor and tricks it into thinking it's hot. And so this receptor opens, sends a signal of heat to um, the body. And so when I saw this study and I saw what they had found, I thought this was, you know, I thought this was awesome. I thought this was great. And it was in the kind of right place, right environment. And so I, um, you know, applied for a position and got a position there at his laboratory to start kind of uh, continue this, this research. That's really cool. So, so the heat sensing um, receptors, they, is it, is it the same type that would detect like regular changes in temperature? Yeah. So that's basic. So what we know now, and this was the first study that had ever identified any sort of temperature sensor. 
And what these proteins are able to do is they, they, they are, they're basically the, the switches. So you have these uh, nerves that are in, again, like the skin, for instance, where you'll be sensing temperature. And at normal physiological temperature, skin temperature, these nerves would essentially be for all intents and purposes inactive, quiet. And what this protein, and if you, but as temperatures increase, and in this case for this receptor, get to around what's called around 43 degrees centigrade, which is where we all will begin to perceive temperature as painfully hot or begin to become painfully hot, this receptor then turns on. And what it is, it's a protein that's in the membrane of cells and it allows positively charged ions like sodium, for instance, to go from outside the cell to inside the cell. And nerves are these remarkable electrical conductors and they conduct electricity based on positively charged ions like a sodium primarily going from outside the cell to inside the cell. And what this protein does is when it senses a certain temperature, it turns on, it opens up this pore or channel in the membrane that allows sodium to flow into the cell, making the inside of the cell more positive charge because we're just building a positively sodium ions. And that's what initiates the signal. So what this, this protein does, is it's a temperature sensor. And then we've now found there are several similar proteins. And that was actually what some of my work was that detect different ranges of temperature from really painful heat. Now in this case, down to like what my lab studies in this case, cold. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that the eye was particularly sensitive to cold. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Mm -hmm. It's basically, it's this, one of the things that's interesting people have found with the eye is it uses a little bit, the sensation of cold is also part of the sensation of dryness. And, um, and, but you think about the importance of the eye, the eye is a very fragile, if you will, piece of tissue, you know, very thin membranes, very, very thin components. And so that's why any little thing that gets in your eye, you know, a little hair or a little, little whatever, or a little say piece of dust we notice it right away because we don't want the damage to occur. So it's again, it's an example of a, a, the evolution of this is that this is a tissue that is very sensitive to these sorts of stimuli because they can cause damage. And so we want to make sure that we actually protect ourselves from, from this sort of damage. I remember learning at some point that our, our sensation of cold, hot, and warm, I don't remember which was which, but the idea was that two out of the three are like real and one of them is a combination of the other two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting, almost philosophical discussion because there's the old phrase that um, cold is just the absence of heat is uh -huh. one of the ideas. And so, but, um, and that was actually, I mean, kind of get into this now, that's basically what we kind of came up against with the work that I did when I was um, kind of extending upon this capsaicin heat receptor is that, the general belief in the field was that, yeah, we have heat sensors, but there not wouldn't be a cold sensor um, because cold, you know, if you think about it from a purely, um, it's like an enzymatic level, when we think about proteins and their function, typically when we think about cold, that's something that is inhibitory, slows the activity of things down. As we cool things down, things start to slow down. And so the idea was that, well, there, there is likely what's happening is as you cool, you're inhibiting the normal function of um, the cell that's involved in maintaining its activity. And then you, by inhibiting it, you're actually getting a, a signal. You're actually detecting that signal. Um, and so, but 
we went from the perspective that, well, maybe there actually is an actual sensor for cold. And we found there actually is. There's a protein that's very much similar to this heat sensing capsaicin sensitive protein that also is a sensor for cold. Mm -hmm. And it so, is activated by cold. So that's different than something like cold would just be the absence of heat. It's like its own. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and when you think about cold from the perspective of when we per perceive it, we, we perceive cold, we, we sense it as, a, as both a pleasant and a painful temperature, the same for heat, you know, warmth we like and painful heat we don't. But cold also does things like, you know, you have, uh, an injury, people tell you to ice it, these sort of things. Because what that can do is that cold can basically slow down normal functions, basically inflammation. So a really good example would be if you say burn yourself, one of the best things you can do for yourself is to, to prevent blistering and that sort of thing is to ice the area of, of the wound. And what that will do is that'll slow down the cellular processes that are involved there in producing a big inflammatory response. And that's what causes things like blisters and the pain there. And if you slow that down, you prevent that from kind of overtaking and manifesting itself. Um, mm. So cold is that perspective, but also we know too, is that cold itself is actually detected by specific, like we said, nerves and receptors that are involved in sending that signal to the brain that you're experiencing cold. Mm -hmm. So is the reason we have these two separate receptors does it have anything to do with how neurons fire kind of all or nothing? So it, as opposed to having just a single temperature receptor and it could go one way mm -hmm. or the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it what I think the way to think about it is more of like a circuit, like an, like an electrical circuit. And what we want to do is we want to take the signal and send it to the brain to let it know that it's sensing warmth or heat or cool or cold and allow it to distinguish those different percepts. And that's what it looks like these, these, these receptors do is they give it the ability to fine tune the response better than just say, oh, there's no heat there. Um, uh -huh. I think is a way to, to, to look at it in that case. So that, that's any... what, what, the, what, what the biology tells us. There are specific receptors for the different modes of temperature. Are there any single neurons that don't just sit like go fire or not fire, but that could fire in opposite directions. So let's say you have a baseline neutral and then it could either mm -hmm. fire in one direction for hot and another direction for cold. Well, it, it, it's an interesting point. And actually what, what we'll know is if we, if we record activity from these say warm fibers or cold fibers um, at normal skin temperature, what they have is they have a tonic rate of activity and you can just see little, little spikes of activity that they're just kind of sensing um, temperature. And what happens for a warm sensing or heat sensing fiber, as you increase temperature, of course, that activity increases. So it's not just an all or none. You're always getting little action potentials, little electrical signals propagating through these neurons, but the rate and the number which you get them will increase as you heat for a heat sensing fiber. What's interesting is that when you cool these heat sensing fibers, that kind of tonic activity goes down. They become inhibited by cooling. So you can kind of see that there, there is a, a greater difference. It's just the opposite for cold fibers. They are, again, at skin temperature, have this tonic activity, and then you cool down, that activity increases, you warm them up, that activity decreases. So they are really graded by and sensing a range of temperature. And what is our 
challenge in our field now is to understand how these different signals from these different types of cells, as they work their way through the central nervous system, how do we really know what's what, you know, I'm getting mm -hmm. the certain activity from a warm fiber, a change in a cold fiber. How am I able to distinguish exactly what's happening in my in, in, in environment? And that's basically what a lot of us are trying to study right now. Mm -hmm. So when you're just sitting around and it's normal temperature and you're not feeling either hot or cold, mm -hmm. is it that the two are firing and they're canceling each other out? Or is it just that there's no activity? No, there, there's activity, but what your, what your body is doing is your body's adjusting and adapting to that. I mean, the, the example would be you can use, there's also, you know, we're interested in the nerves that sense, and it's the same kind of class that sense mechanical stimuli. So if you think about it, when you put, you know, you, you put your, your shirt on in the morning, you know, you put your shirt on because now you can feel it against your skin, but you kind of stop noticing it after a while, right? If you're always feeling the sensation of that being on your skin, it would be kind of drive you crazy after a while, probably. Mm -hmm. So what happens is these cells can, they can, they can all respond to and send kind of different signals like initial touches, more general, long lasting sensations. In many cases, what they do is they will adapt to a static stimulus. Mm -hmm. um, if it's everything stays the same, they'll kind of adapt and that's where it will be. And you know, things are there, but if that stimulus changes, the intensity changes either less or more then that rate, which, which that neuron is responding will change accordingly. And that'll give you, Oh, something's changed. And now mm -hmm. I know I've, you know, I've moved my, my skin or I've, or something's touched me, which I didn't realize it was there be before. Uh -huh. So, so if things are relatively constant, you become habituated and then mm -hmm. things change, you kind of wake up again. Yeah. You, you, you know, you notice that difference. Yeah. But then there's this threshold where if temperature becomes painful, for example, it mm -hmm. doesn't seem like you can just sit with it and wait for it to, for your body to start canceling it out. Yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of the point of the system is you don't want to, right. Uh -huh. You know, we, we, the way to think about painful stimuli is really a warning device. It's the, if you, if we look at the intensities of the stimuli, which will cause pain, what's essentially happening is those stimuli are beginning to cause tissue damage. You're going to get some sort of damage to the skin or, you know, the eye, like we've been talking about. And the idea is, is that we want to perceive that. And we don't actually want to have that go away because we want to know there is a painful stimulus there, or we want to know more important that there is something that's going to cause damage there. And if we just kind of adapted to that, then that damage would be, um, you know, continual. We wouldn't be able to respond to it. You know, when I, when I teach this to grad students and medical students, I, my analogy is it's like, you know, hey, stop what you're doing. You shouldn't be doing that. That's essentially what the pain system is trying to do for you. Yeah. So going back to spice, what mm -hmm. about people who are just super into spicy food and they build up mm -hmm. a tolerance and so yeah. maybe they're eating ghost peppers, but something like a jalapeno no longer feels spicy to them. Yeah. And we're, we're a, a bizarre species, as we all know, as humans, we're not supposed to like those things. Okay? Uh -huh. We're not supposed <laughs> to like the spices. In fact, I think the evolutionary context is, is they, they were made to avoid being consumed by, by mammals. Um, but if you think about it, if you give, you know, a small child some capsaicin, they're going to hate it like they should. We humans, we adapt to these things. And yeah. one of the things that happens is you, it's kind of a two layer process. You can actually kill off your nerve endings by having too much of like capsaicin 
In fact, you, you can actually kill off nerves because what happens is, is you activate them so strongly that they, they basically kill themselves because there's too much activity. There's, it's, it's basically, it's basically a, you can consider a neurotoxin at some level because of the fact that it can actually kill. Um, but we can also adapt to the way we per perceive these things. And, you know, there is just a different level some people have in terms of their, their, their sensitivity to these things. I've heard about how capsaicin doesn't affect birds. So was that, mm -hmm. <clears throat> is that an example of them adapting to it over like long spans of time, or do they just have very different, um, like receptors? It's an interesting question. Actually, it's something a colleague of mine when I was a postdoc actually published a paper on this. And what he was trying to do is he was trying to understand at the molecular level, the capsaicin receptor molecule, what part of it is involved in sensing capsaicin and what part of it is involved in sensing temperature. And the temperature sensing part, we really haven't figured out. We could know a little bit more about how these proteins change structure, how they change their shape as temperature changes. But he was able to identify the, the, the region in the protein where capsaicin binds to the protein, and that's what changes the protein's activity. And he used basically comparing a rodent form of the receptor, which is obviously capsaicin sensitive to a chicken form of the receptor, the avian form, which is not. And what we now we know is there is a chick, the avians have a mutation in the receptor that prevents it capsaicin from, from binding. So he was able to use that to actually identify where the capsaicin binding site is. And you know, there's a lot of, I think, kind of hand-waving evolutionary discussions as to why that is. There might be some evolutionary advantage to birds eating the seeds of a pepper and dispersing it farther versus a rodent eating it and so forth. But the different, they have the exact same receptor. It still responds to temperature, but there are, there are some subtle mutations at the level of say single amino acids in the protein that prevent capsaicin from binding to it. So the mutation kind of hints at once upon a time, it was the same and then something changed for them. Yeah, yeah. And the question is which which way was it, you know, and I actually don't know the answer to that question. Was it, did did uh, did mammals develop the sensitivity to capsa capsaicin or did avians lose it? I, I actually don't know the answer to that question. Uh -huh. I probably should look it up on these days or see if anybody yeah. does know, but I haven't pursued that. So why would, why would mammals develop one that seems to, to not do them any good because it's not like peppers are harmful to us right we just mm -hmm. it, they just mm -hmm. trick us into thinking they're harmful well the the way to evolution to think about it is that we did not develop it as that the plants did the remarkable biology and that's what when i you know try to explain kind of how we identified you know how this capsaicin receptor identified and the one that i identified i i say the real hardcore biology was not done by us as humans it was done by plants and uh -huh. they over evolution essentially developed a molecule that could attack an endogenous protein. The, the capsaicin receptor, its job is a heat sensor. It's not really meant to be there as a capsaicin sensor. Plants develop capsaicin to kind of hijack what is the normal system of sensing painful heat. That's mm -hmm. really kind of one way to look at it. So is that kind of similar to how drugs will kind of match the shape of, of yeah. like our, our neuroreceptors? Yeah. So think of, you know, we, we all hear about the opiate crisis right now. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you've heard of what are called endor endorphins and endogenous, you know, um, uh, opiates is what they are. So there are opiate receptors and yeah, the plants, the poppy over evolution developed a molecule that has similar similarities. And the way to think about um, 
receptors and drugs is proteins have these little pockets, we call them, that will have neurotransmitters or hormones or all these things that regulate their activity will bind to in those little pockets. And it's like a lock and a key kind of mechanism. You have to have the certain ridges and the certain components. And so the way that these, you know, exogenous non, you know, non, um, uh, things like, 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 like opium or, or morphine, they have a similar shape as what the normal endorphin would have. And so they combine to it in that case. So how do you pick the level of analysis for your problem? Like whether you're looking at entire brain regions or like clusters of neurons or particular mm -hmm. neurons or like particular proteins within a neuron or like what the proteins are made of, you can, you can look at it at any level. Yeah, it kind of depends on what questions you're interested in. You know, so my, what, when my, I mean, when I, basically the reason why I have a laboratory right now is that when I was, um, again, uh, doing my postdoctoral fellowship, we, the lab had been studying this heat sensor protein and um, we thought, well, what about cold? And so we look for a cold receptor and we're able to find one. And so really what my lab, what I've been focusing on my entire lab time career is trying to understand how this protein functions um, at the cell level, at the molecular level, and then what its function and the neurons that it is normally found in, what their role is in biology and kind of the physiological response that animals or we as humans will have to these sorts of stimuli. And so it's really just kind of that question that's kind of driven what my lab has been looking at over the years. And as scientists, many, many of us, we kind of follow the results where they take us. You know, I've, I've been, we've just been interested in this protein and we really haven't found um, anything that excites us more than this right now. So have you, have you done any research comparing um, temperature sensing in humans and other animals? Uh, we have, no, have not done stuff at the level of, of, of humans for perception. Um, those are challenging. There's a, there's a lot been done for decades now, trying to understand different fiber types, different neurons and how they respond. But um, it's always a challenge for us to make sure what we're looking at in the animal model is going to be applicable to uh -huh. what you, um, the human condition. So you try and start with the simplest possible animal and then like build upwards from there. Yeah, it's so it's it is what we want to understand at the basic level is is how do the how does the protein function? What gives it this properties? Um, how does it in the context of where it is, in the cells it's in? How does it control these cell functions? What do these cells do in terms of biology? And then um, then see if that has any relevance towards uh, clinical applications. And so for instance, we're interested in chronic pain. How does that happen? How is this involved in? How can we look at um, what might happen to this molecule, these cells, these, these neural circuits when you have conditions such as chronic pain? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like for it to be able to translate from studies, let's say in mice up to clinical applications for humans, there must be a lot of conservation like throughout, throughout evolutionary history. There is, yeah. Well, I mean, for instance, these, um, these proteins, if you look at them at the, uh, their, their level of the sequence, either the gene sequence, the protein sequence, they're 
highly conserved. And it looks like at least, and the fu functional properties, if we just put a human form of one of these receptors in a cell versus a mouse form, they look essentially identically. You wouldn't be able to tell them apart for many of the basic functions of these proteins. Mm -hmm. um, now at the level of how the brain has been wired for a mouse versus for a human, there can be some substantial differences. And some of that basically is how we use these the systems. You know, some, some animals are much more sensitive to temperature than we are. Some more animals were much more visual than say a mouse, you know? So things are different depending on the species. So you guys really have to keep that a little bit in context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so how far back can you go before you start seeing major differences? Like, I don't know the exact figures, but it, it's something like we share 99% of our DNA with chimps and like 90% with other mammals and maybe mm -hmm. like 70% even with some plants. Maybe that, yeah. maybe that one's too crazy, but. No, it's very close. So for instance, well, if you, if you look really kind of get down to the basics of what a cell is, the cell that we have in a cell that a, a mouse has or the plant has, a lot of the basic principles are the same. How we generate the membranes that surround cells, how we um, control structure of a cell, how do we change its shape? Um, a lot of cases, how does the cell communicate both internally and externally? So the majority of it uses the same because you know we've you know evolution is if if something's worked, why get why get rid of it or change it? But it is those kind of fringe um, proteins that have a little different structure, different little function that really define cells um, from different species or even within a single species. You know what makes you know a neuron dramatically different than another type of neuron or dramatically different from a muscle cell or a, a, a kidney cell or something like that. It just just a few, you know, in context, a few proteins can make those dramatic differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from a, a philosophical perspective, is something like pain, is it is it like whatever these processes are, that's what pain is and that's consistent across all animals? Or is it like pain is just a functional system of maybe like approach avoidance and that can evolve in many different ways? Well, you know, what's remarkable about pain is that if you look at this, uh, I talked about the, the threshold temperature for not painful heat being 43 degrees centigrade, mm -hmm. by and large, whatever species you look at, they will all respond to that, which looks like a painful stimulus, a painful response. You know, we'll, if we touch that temperature, we'll probably withdraw our hand. A mouse will do that. Um, you can take uh, larvae from flies. So little larvae flies and you touch them with temperatures around 43 degrees centigrade, they will writhe and roll away, which looks like to us, we think in terms of biology, a, a painful response. Wow. And it's the same notion. You're, you're, you're causing tissue damage with these sort of stimuli. So the membranes, the proteins in uh, Drosophila larvae that are going to be damaged by these temperatures are very much the same as the, the membranes and proteins that are in our cells. And so pain from that perspective, you think about it as, again, it's this warning device, this warning system, which has evolved to hopefully prevent us from exposing ourselves to tissue damaging type of stimuli. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the philosophical question I have in mind, it's functionalism versus <clears throat> identity theory. And the identity theory would say that whatever pain is, we'll define it in, in like, you know, some specific, um, 
fiber stimulation, let's say. Mm -hmm. And if you're experiencing that, you're experiencing pain. And then the functionalist might say that it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it, uh, it causes this avoidance behavior, that's pain. Yeah, well, and, you know, there's this that, the notion of, you know, and this is not my field for sure, so mm-hmm. <laughs> careful, you know, emotional pain. You know, there's yeah. a lot of discussion that if you look at the regions of the brain in these imaging studies that are done, the parts of the brain that light up for physical pain versus emotional pain are the same, mm-hmm. right? And so it just, it's again, how the information is processed and how we respond to it. And uh-huh. we're, we're still... I think just scratching the surface of understanding how that works. So if these random chemicals created by plants can trick us into thinking we're in pain, is it possible that that other maybe like hormones or stuff that's involved in emotion can do the same? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So exa- So there's also what think about um, when we think about the pain signals coming in, pain signals come from the periphery and work, work the way up from, you know, from your fingertip up into your brain, but you can control also how pain is responded kind of from your brain down. And um, again, that's what these uh, endogenous type of opiates are thought to actually do. These things like um, uh, dynorphin is another protein that gets released. They can c- control how you respond. And what they essentially do is they work to, if the signal is coming from the periphery up, to your brain center that is actually tells you this is pain, you can send a signal that actually tries to slow down that signal or, or dull it a little bit. And you know, I think a great example of this is people who are in high stress situations, people, soldiers you know, in battle, they'll have some sort of wound that under these high stress situations where you know, clearly they're producing a lot of these um, 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 hormones, they don't notice the injury until things have kind of calmed down and they've settled down and they've come down that because mm-hmm. it really is a protective mechanism to say, okay, you know, if I'm wounded, I can't escape from the tiger coming after me. Or, you know, I think when put in that kind of context, um, if I'm too focused mm-hmm. on the pain, so you can actually control it downward, if you will, from the, from the, the, the brain down to the periphery and to uh-huh. how we perceive and respond to it. That makes sense. Why do you think we don't have control over that? Like if, so once you're escaped the, the dangerous situation and you're mm-hmm. sitting there in pain and let's say you're in a, a safe place that you're going to heal, but it's going to take several weeks to heal. You're going to be in pain during that time, but it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like at that point it's serving any, any good purpose. Well, what it's doing is it's actually, it's the protective mechanism that's that, you know, if you think about it, if, you know, if you have, you know, part of your skin, that's not injured, you you touch it, you know, you feel, you feel normal sensation, but if it's injured, you touch it and you're much more sensitive to that. And you want to make sure you know where the injury is. You want to make sure you're prepared for the injury. And so the way to think about it is that the system is developed to make sure that we still know that we are injured until we have fully healed. Okay. Now that's what, if the system works normally, there are many situations, chronic pain states where that doesn't happen, where the injury resolves itself, but we still perceive pain in that case. And that's what a lot of us are interested in trying to understand how these sort of chronic conditions, what happens, what's gone wrong in this, the signaling. And it can be very mm-hmm. debilitating for a lot of people. When you say chronic pain, do you mean like a chronic injury that's causing chronic pain? Or do you mean like something's gone wrong and they're feeling pain, even though we can't identify the cause? 
Yeah, exactly. So, well, a good example would be is that you have um, people like one of the classic ones, which a lot of us are looking at right now is um, uh, side effects of cancer chemotherapeutics. So there are drugs like paclitaxel, which is a major breast cancer drug. And it works really well as a, as a cancer drug, but 30% or so of the population who take it will develop this really robust, painful neuropathy where things like temperature and force just in their appendages, which were normally not painful, are now very, very painful. And they can even persist after they stop taking the drug. Uh -huh. So they stop taking the drug and some people will actually stop taking the drug because the pain is so severe, even though it, clearly they need the drug to hopefully survive the cancer. So, but these people who stop taking the drug, some of it will stop taking it and then the, um, the pain that they're experiencing will subside, but some of it will persist. It'll persist for months after they stop taking it. And so that's one thing we're all interested in trying to understand is what, what happened in those people what happened under, the, under those conditions that cause the pain to persist when we really think it should have subsided by now. Uh -huh. the, the, the evolutionary physiological need for that pain has gone away. So why hasn't the pain gone away? Mm -hmm. So it seems like either the drug could be like mimicking pain like capsaicin does, or it could, I guess, somehow change your receptors and make you more sensitive to pain. Yeah, it's it's a combination of a lot of things, and that's and that and that's the problem. We really don't un, un, understand what is happening. Is it how just normal information is processed? So there's there's a a term in the field called allodynia, and what that basically means is that under normal conditions, if I touch my hand lightly, it feels fine, okay. But if I'm injured or I have some chronic condition. I touch my hand with that same amount of force, now it feels painful. So a normally non-painful stimulus now feels painful. So the question is, why does that now feel painful? Why do you have this, what's called allodynia? Um, and it could be at the level of where the stimulus is occurring. It could be at the level, the various levels of where that signal that is going to the brain and the processing centers are transmitted it could be that it's tra transmitted incorrectly um we actually we you know we really do not know for sure and that's what that's what we're all that's what keeps us going into the labs every day trying to yeah. see if we can figure that out there's also individual differences in pain sensitivity right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah do we, do we know isn't any real that? genetic basis for that that we know at least uh, genetically we, we, we can tell um what about we, sex it, differences Sex systems are become a really interesting and more focused part because, you know, the, the, between women and men feel pain is much, much different. And there are thought to be some hormonal aspects of that. But in many cases, that's not, we, we can't account for by just differences in, say, the hormones that we all have, you know, t testosterone versus estrogen. Um, and it may just be simple differences in how the system is wired. If, if you want to look at it from that perspective, you know, how, how we can control as the signal gets transmitted through various kind of relay stations, which is what neurons are there. One communicates the next communicates the next, you can kind of fine tune all those different relay stations. And we just have may, may have differences in, in different, different people, mm -hmm. but there are, there are, you know, a number of studies that you know, we and others are doing to try to see what might account for, these, these sexual dimorphisms, we call them, what are the differences between 
so uh, male and females versus pain perception. But for now, we're not we're not exactly sure how um, what's going on there. Yeah, well, we 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 definitely know what happens, but again, there are some mm -hmm. there's some different levels of people looking at it. The it happens is that women are more resistant to pain, right? And by and large, that's yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. And like from you know migraines, a classic example. Women by and large uh, get migraines more than men do, for instance. Why would that happen if they're more resistant to pain? It's the different, it just, it's, uh, it's not that they're more, they, they are more resistant to certain types of pain, but this is a good example where just this type of pain seems to be more prevalent in women than men. So it's not always going to be one versus the other, you know, there are different components of it. Yeah. What about, uh, the opposite end of the spectrum where some people are born with like a rare condition where they can't feel pain? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's been some really wonderful work on down that. Oh, it's, I guess it's, it's, it's a, a, a couple of decades old now, I guess. Um, what these people are is they are essentially, um, they miss a certain protein uh, that's a channel for, for, for sodium. They are, what we, they're null for that. They have a mutation that basically prevents that protein from being made. Yeah. And they can't feel pain. They can sense capsaicin, they can sense cold, they can sense heat, but they don't perceive it as pain. So we know actually genetically what the, what, what the, what the mutation is. They don't have the specific uh, channel for sodium, but they don't perceive pain. And what's interesting about that too, is that there are people who have extreme pain, have um, parts of their body or robustly burning all the time. Well, they have mutations in this same protein, but they have a mutation that makes the protein hyperactive. So this it's called that it's a sodium channel called uh, NAV 1.7. And what's remarkable is you get rid of it. You don't feel pain. You make it more active. You feel a, a, a lot robust pain perception. So does that teach us anything about, about maybe specific drugs that could be used to, because, because you could imagine taking someone with chronic pain and then trying to give them that same mutation that, that the no pain yeah. people have. Well, what, what, which, what, what they are is they're not just a mutation. They don't make the, the protein at all is what it is. They're you, mm -hmm. like, you call them like a knockout. They don't have it. Well, look what people are doing right now. And we've dabbled in this a little bit with some colleagues here at USC, but haven't really got too far on it. But um, this NAV 1.7 channel, it's called has become a major drug target for a lot of companies. Cause the idea is that if you block this, just one protein, you may, you know, be able to treat pain. The problem is, is, you know, if you think about the name I gave, it's NAV 1.7. Well, there's like nine of these different sodium channels that are very similar in structure and shape. And so they, the challenge is finding what this is all case of pharmacology is finding a drug that can specifically target just that one channel. And if you can, but the problem is you probably hit a lot of other channels too. And that's where you get side effects. You need sodium channels mm -hmm. for electrical activity. So, um, um, so, but people are looking at that right now. Uh, so when you're targeting a, some, some specific uh, protein or receptor, you're, you're generally going to accidentally hit others. And that's what gives you side well, effects. You, you can, yeah, it, it depends on the type of protein. I mean, but it's not just that too. So for instance, you know, the genesis behind trying to identify these heat and cold sensors, for instance, or mechanosensitive sensors is that if we could maybe block just these proteins, do we get, can we block just this type of pain, for instance? And what, what, we, what you find is that the proteins are, um, they're, 
many proteins are involved in multiple different aspects of biology. And by blocking one, you might be treating one condition, but you might be affecting something else that's actually vitally important. So mm-hmm. it's always the challenge, specificity and, and um, uh, selectivity of a specific blocking a certain protein is always a challenge for pharmacologists. Mm-hmm. So it's like a cost-benefit trade-off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, for example, would be is that uh, the <clears throat> the capsaicin protein, it's really been shown to be, in, in animal studies, was shown to be really important for um, inflammatory sensitivity to pain. So after you get inflammation, you're much more sensitive. And it was found in animals, if you could block or get rid of this protein, you lost that sensitivity after inflammation. But heat sensation appeared to be just fine. So it was, well, it's, this is a great protein target. We can maintain the ability to sense heat, but block the, the pain associated with inflammation. So some wonderful drugs were made that block this protein really well. The problem is, is that they block it so well that twofold, people can't feel heat, which is not a good thing because you wouldn't know if your cup of coffee is too hot or you know you don't, you lose that protective mechanism. But what also happened too is people, when you block the protein, people started to get fevers. And the idea, and what happened was, is that this is a heat sensing receptor. And if you think about people who eat um, a lot of spicy foods, capsaicin, they'll begin to kind of sweat. Well, what's happening is, is you're activating heat sensors. You're telling your brain, you're probably hot. Your brain needs to thermoregulate. So it'll start to try to cool you down by sweating. So if you inject an animal with capsaicin, you'll get a drop in core body temperature. You block the protein with an antagonist, you get an increase in core temperature. So mm-hmm. a lot of the companies had some hard time pursuing this further because what happened was, well, why do we want to give someone a fever if we're trying to treat this kind of inflammatory condition? And we found the same thing for the cold receptor. If you, if you give an, an agonist for the cold receptor, you'll see animals really shiver, even though they're not in a cold environment and they're raising their body temperature because they think they're cold. And if you block with antagonists, you'll get a block and drop in core temperature. So you can kind of regulate it that way. So even though these are like heat sensors or cold sensors for just our perception, what they do is they're also involved in our body's physiological um, processes to kind of keep a homeostasis to regulate our core temperature. And if you screw those two things up, you can get an imbalance there in that case. So let's imagine we had a complete understanding of the neurobiology of pain and we could target anything we wanted with specific drugs. It sounds like outside of reducing chronic pain, for the most part, we would want to keep our pain. Yeah. Well, and, and you're getting back to those people you brought up who can't feel pain. It's a, it's a, it, it is a terrible condition. I mean, you'll see uh, infants, like for instance, they'll do simple things like bite off the tips of their tongues as babies because they can't feel that as painful. Um, you know, so you, you have it, you actually, and this is why I tell students in my classes, you want to feel pain. Okay. You want to know, because you're, again, it's telling you stop what you're doing. Okay. The issue is what happens when you're feeling pain, when you shouldn't be feeling pain. Uh Okay. One more question, which is the the type of pain that people seem to like. So for example, Mm -hmm. you're working out and it's a very hard workout and your muscles are aching, but at the same time, that it's not like the same thing as harmful pain. Yeah. People seem to like it. You're producing the endor- endorphins again. This kind of goes back to that same analogy of, of the protective mechanisms. When you're mm. 
when your body is really under intense physical condition, one of the ways it tries to maintain, but the, I mean, think about this evolutionarily, right? You know, we're, we're running away from a, um, 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 something that's trying to do to harm to us. Okay. We want to make sure we can maintain that level of activity as long as possible, but that's going to be basis for our survival. Mm-hmm. And so you want to try to keep the system to be active as much as possible. And so you get release of endorphins and these sort of things. And that's what can re- regulate the system. Uh-huh. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. This has been very interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. All right.